Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Andrea Norton's The Stars Are Ours, Volume 8, Chapter 6, Disaster. Their attempts to explore on foot were frustrated by the mounds of debris and danger from falling rubble. Cully jumped to safety from the top of a mound which caved in under his weight and so escaped a dangerous slide into one of the pits. Those pits were everywhere, dug so deeply into the foundation of the city that the Terrans, huddling on the rims, could look down past several underground levels to a darkness uncut by the sun. A little shaken by the engineer's narrow escape, they retired to the sled and made an unappetizing meal on concentrates. No birds, Dart suddenly realized that fact. There's nothing alive here. Uh-huh. Santee dug his heel into the grass and earth. No bugs either, and there are enough of them back in the valley. No birds, no insects, Kimber said slowly. The place is dead. I don't know how the rest of you feel, but I've had just about enough of this. They agreed with that. The brooding stillness broken only when debris crashed or rolled rasped their nerves. Dard swallowed his last bite of concentrate and turned to the pilot. Do we have any microfilm we can use? For what? A lot of broken buildings? Collie wanted to know. I'd like to capture one of those bands of colors around that doorway, Dart answered. His idea that the bands had a meaning was perhaps silly, but he couldn't push it away. All right, kid. Kimber unpacked the small recorder and focused it on a place where the sun was strong. No pattern I can see, but it just might mean something at that. That was the only picture they took when on the ground. But once again in the air, Cully ran the machine for a bird's eye view of as much of the ruined area as could be recorded. They were approaching the outer reaches of the city to the east when Santee gave an exclamation and touched Kimber's arm. They were over a street less cumbered with rubble than any they had yet crossed, and there was a flicker of movement down there. As the sled coasted down, they disturbed a pack of grayish, four-footed things that streaked away into the ruins, leaving their meal behind them on the blood-smeared pavement. Wow! Cully coughed, and Dart gagged at the stench the wind carried in their direction. They left the sled to gather around the tangle of stripped bones and rotting flesh. That wasn't killed today, Kimber observed unnecessarily. Dard rounded the stained area. The dead thing had been large, perhaps the size of a Terran draft horse, and the skeleton, tumbled as the bones were now, suggested that it was four-footed and hooved. But that skull to which ragged and blood-clotted hair still clung was what he moved to see, and he had been right. Two horns sprouted above the eye sockets, this was the horned horse of the game set. It's a duocorn, mused the pilot. A what? Santee wanted to know. There was a fabled animal mentioned in some of the old books on Terra. It had a single horn in the middle of the forehead, but the rest was all horse. Well, here's a horse with two horns, a duocorn instead of a unicorn. But those things we saw feeding here, they were pretty small to bring down an animal of this size. Unless they carry a burper, they didn't. Dard, in spite of the odor, leaned down to inspect that stretch of spine beyond the loose skull. A section of vertebrae had been smashed, just as if a giant vice had been applied to the nape of the duocorn's neck. 
Crushed, Kimber agreed. Well, what could do that? Cully studied the body. Mighty big for a horse. There were breeds on earth that were 17 to 20 hands high at the shoulders and weighed close to a ton, returned Kimber. This fellow must have been about that size. And what is big enough to crunch through the spine, supporting a ton of meat? Santee wanted to know. He went back to the sled and picked up his rifle. Dard backtrailed from the evil-smelling bones. Several paces farther on, he discovered what he was looking for. Marks which proved that the body had been dragged and worried for almost half of a city block. And also plain to read in the drift of soil across the street were prints. The marks cut deeply by the hooves of the duocorn were half blotted out in places by another spore, three long-legged claws, with faint scuffed spaces between, as if they were united by a webbed membrane. Dard went down on one knee and flexed his own hand over the clearest of those prints. With his fingers spread out to their fullest extent, he could just span it. Looks like a chicken track, Santee had come up behind him. More likely a reptile. I've seen a field lizard leave a spore like this, except for the size. Another dragon? Large size, maybe? Cully suggested. Dard shook his head as he got to his feet and started along that back trail. This one runs, not flies, but I'm pretty sure it's a nasty customer. There was a scuttling to their left. Santee whirled, rifle ready. A small stone rolled from the top of the nearest pile of rubble and thudded home against the yellow teeth of the skull. Somebody's getting impatient over their interrupted dinner. Cully ended with a laugh which sounded unnaturally loud in the surroundings. Kimber went back to the sled. We might as well let him or her or it come back to their table. There are, he glanced around the ruins, altogether too many good-looking places here. I'll feel safer out in open country where I can see any lizard that big before it sees me. But when they were airborne, Kimber did not turn inland. Instead, he followed the curve of the bay onto the northwest. The ruins beneath them dwindled to isolated houses, domed or towered, in better repair than those situated in the heart of the city. Beneath them now were brilliant patches of flowers, long since returned to the wild. Little streams made graceful curves through what Dard was sure had been pleasant gardens. Fairy towers, which appeared too delicate to withstand the pull of the planet's gravity, pointed useless fingers up at the cruising sled. Once they flew for almost half a mile above a palace, but here again a curdled crystalline blotch cut the building in two. None of what they saw gave them any desire to descend and explore. Here the trees grew too high. There were too many shadows. The tangled pleasure gardens and wild grounds were good lurking places for terror to stalk the unwary. The broken city faded into the green of the rolling country and the aquamarine of the sea. Fewer and fewer domed houses broke the green, and those were probably farms. Here were birds as if the haunted horror of the city was gone. The seashore curved again, but Kimber did not follow it west. He veered to the east to cross fields which the regular old patterns were marked by bushy hedgerows. It was in one of these fields that they sighted the first living duocorns, four delts and two colts, but all four were well under the size of the monster whose skeleton had attracted their attention in the city.
These animals were uniform in color, showing none of the variations in marking possessed by Terran horses. Their coats were a slaty blue-gray, their unkept manes and tails black, and their bellies and underportions of their legs silver. The horns were silver with the real sheen of that precious metal. As the sled droned over them, the largest flung up its head to issue a trumpeting scream. Then, hurting its companions before it, it settled into a rocking gallop up the sloping field to the hedge at the far side beyond which was a grove of trees. With graceful ease, all the fleeing animals leapt the hedge and disappeared under those trees, nor did they come out the other side of the grove. Good runners, Cully gave credit. You suppose they were always wild or the descendants of domestic stock? I bet Harmon would like to have a couple of those. He was pretty fed up when he found out he couldn't bring those two colts he had picked out. The big one was a fighter. Did you see him shake those horns? demanded Santee. I wouldn't want him to catch me out in the open walking. Odd. Dart had been watching the far end of the grove and was now puzzled. You'd think they'd keep on running, but they're staying in there. Under cover, safe from any menace in the air, Kimber said. And that suggests some unpleasant possibilities. A large flying danger? Dard whistled as he caught Kimber's idea. A thing maybe as big as his sled? But it would be too big to fly in its own power. Bigger things than that have flown in Terra's past, the pilot reminded him. And it may not be a living thing they fear, but a machine. Either way, we'd better watch out. But those flying things were far back in our history protested the boy. Could such primitive things exist along with man or whatever built that city? How can we say what may or may not have survived here, or if that city was destroyed by radioactive missiles, what may have mutated, or what may fly machines? Since the duocorns remained stubbornly in hiding, the sled gave up investigation and flew east, the setting sun behind them and long afternoon shadows stretching to point their path. Where are we going to camp? Santee wanted to know. Out here somewheres? I'd say yes, Kimber said. There's a river over there. Might find a good place somewhere along it. The river was in shadow and its waters were clear enough for them to be able to sight from the air the rough stones which paved its bed. An uneven fringe of water plants cloaked the shoreline until climbing ground provided bluffs. The sparkle of the sun on ripples flashed up from a wider expanse as the sled reached a place where the gravel bed flattened out into a round lake. The stream spattered down from heights to feed this, forming a miniature waterfall, and there was a level stretch of sand unencumbered by rocks which made a good landing for the sled. Cully stretched and grinned. Good enough. You know how to pick them, Sim. Even a cave for us to sleep in. The space he pointed to was not a real cave, rather a semi-protected hollow beneath an overhang of rock, but it gave them a vague sense of security when they unrolled their sleeping bags against its back wall. This was the first night Dart had spent in the open under a moonless sky, and he found the darkness discomforting, though stars made new crystal patterns across the heavens. They had a fire of river drift, but beyond that, the darkness was thick enough to be smooth between thumb and forefinger. The fire had died down to gleaming coals when Dard was shocked awake by a howling wail. 
The sound was repeated to be either echoed or answered from downriver. Above the rumble of the fall, he was sure he caught the clink of disturbed gravel. Another ear-splitting shriek made his heart jump as Kimber flashed on the beam of a pocket torch without moving from beside him. Pinned in that beam, hunched, was a weird biped, about four feet tall. Its body was completely covered with fine silky hair, which arose in a fluff along its back and limbs, roughened by its astonished fright. The face was three-quarters eyes, round and staring with no discernible lids. There was no apparent nose above an animal's sharply fanged muzzle. Four-digit hands went up to shield those eyes, and the thing gave a moan which arose to a howl, but it made no attempt to flee, as if the strange light held it prisoner. Monkey! That was Santee. A night-running monkey! Into that beam from the torch, insects began to gather. Great feathery-winged moth things, some as large as birds, and at their appearance, the night howler came to life. With a feline's lithe grace, it leapt and captured two of the moths, and then scurried into the darkness, where a low snarl suggested it was now disputing possession of these prizes with another. Kimber held the torch steady, and the moths came in, a drifting cloud coasting along that ray toward the explorers. Round eyeballs of phosphorescence glittered just at the border of the light, and furry paws clawed through at those flying things. Triumphant squeaks heralded captures, and the howling arose in a triumphant chorus as if others were being summoned to this lucky hunting. Kimber snapped off the light just before the first wave of moths reached the Terrans. The whisper of wings was drowned out by several shrill cries, but when the light was not turned on again, the four heard the rattle of gravel and a fading wail as the monkeys withdrew down river. Show's over for the night, I hope, Cully grunted sleepily. Bet some wise guy could make a fortune selling torches to those boys as moth lures. Dard allowed his head to drop back onto the padded end of the sleeping bag. Suppose those monkeys were intelligent enough to enable the Terrans to establish trade relations. Could one make contact with them? To the human eye, their man-like stance and the way they used their hands made them appear more approachable than any other native creature on this world which the Terrans had yet sighted. Surely these creatures had not built the city, but they walked erect and had been quick enough to evaluate the use of light for attracting their food supply. If they were wholly night creatures, as their large eyes and ease of traveling through the dark suggested, would the Terrans ever see them again? Dard was still puzzling that out when he slipped into a dream in which he again stood before the ruined building within the city and studied those baffling lines of color. But this time those bands held a meaning, and he had almost grasped it when he heard a sound behind him. Not daring to turn his head, for he knew that death sniffed his trail, he began to run with dragging leaden feet, and behind him death pounded relentlessly. With bursting lungs, he turned the corner into another cluttered half-block street and saw before him blood and bones from which gray things ran. He slipped and went down and awoke, his heart pounding wildly, his body slippery with dank, chill sweat. It was gray light. He could see the moving water, the remains of the previous night's fire. Stealthily, he wriggled out of his sleeping bag 
and crawled into the open. Then he went to the water and splashed it over his head and forearms until its clear chill washed out of him the fear the nightmare had left. Gasping a little from the chill, he tramped along to the rising cliffs beside the falls. Vines ran down the shiny black of the stone, clinging to its uneven surface with tiny sucker feet. The lianas themselves were a white-gray and bare of leaves except for a few which grew in tight bunches near the top of the cliff. Clusters of ropey creepers dangled in a limp fringe along each main stem. In a pocket formed by the crossing of several lianas, he sighted a find. Surely that brighter green marked one of the perfume plants that Trudy Harmon wanted. The triangular leaves, glossy and colorful against such a drab background, bobbed from scarlet stems. And there were seed pods also. They hung red and yellow, pulled down by the weight of their contents. He snapped off three and stretched to reach a fourth. It was just then he caught sight of the twitching close to the ground where something struggled hopelessly. Two of the creepers, about the size of his little finger, were holding in a throttling grip the writhing body of a hopper. The small animal's eyes protruded agonizingly, and a bloody froth ringed its gasping mouth. Dar drew his knife and slashed the white cords, but the steel did not cut through. It rebounded as if he had tried to sever rubber with a dull edge. Before he could raise it for a second blow, a larger creeper flicked out and encircled his wrist, pulling him off balance against the cliff. With lightning speed, the ropey fringe dangling there came to life, those near enough whipping around his body, those too far away straining toward the struggle until they were stretched in straight lines. And as each tie fell about him, he discovered it was equipped with small thorns which tore his skin in red-hot torment. He shouted and fought, but all his struggles seemed to carry him closer to those other suckers, and they were fast winding him helpless when he heard the excited cries of the others and saw them racing for him. Before they were close enough to help, he was able to tear his knife arm free, to slash and score the mass of wavering tendrils that enclosed him. Then he paused. The things were falling away of their own accord. Within another minute, the last and the largest sullenly relinquished its hold. "'What happened?' yelled Santee. "'What did you do to make those things let go?' Wherever the plants had met his flesh, they had left their brand in pinpoint dots of oozing blood, which trickled down his arms, throat, and one cheek. But those lianas which had fallen away from him, they were turning black, shriveling, rotting away in pieces. The thing had tasted his blood.' and it was poisoned. Poisoned? I poisoned it. Be glad that you did, snapped Kimber. You're in luck. These weren't. He kicked up the gravel below the vines with the toe of his boot and plowed up brittle bones and small skulls. The pilot, as he treated Dard's slight wounds, was emphatic. Hereafter we stay together. It worked out all right this time, but it might not later. Stick together and distrust everything unless you have already seen it in action. But they were all together and apparently in no danger when disaster struck them a backhanded blow that same day. They'd been using the sleepy stream as a guide back into a range of hills and by mid-morning had sighted in the northeast what could only be a chain of mountains, purple-blue against the sky. These ran from north to south as far as those in the sled could see. 
Perhaps if the Terrans had not been so intent upon those distant peaks, they might have seen something below which would have warned them. Probably not, though. Man, when he goes to war, displays the deepest depths of cunning. Their first intimation of danger arrived simultaneously with the blow that smashed them out of the sky. A sharp burst of sound, and the sled buckled, as if batted by a giant club. The craft fluttered into a falling twirl which Kimber fought at the controls, trying to pull out of the spin. If the passengers had not been strapped in, they would have plunged earthward in the first three seconds of that wild descent. While Dard was trying to understand what had happened, a burst of brilliant light temporarily blinded him. More sound bracketing them and somebody crying out in pain, and then he knew they were falling out of control, and by some instinct he flung up his arms to shield his head just before they struck, and he blacked out. He couldn't have been unconscious long because when he raised his head, Cully was still dazedly fumbling to free himself from the safety straps. Dard spat to clear his mouth and saw a blob of blood and a tooth strike the ground. He loosened the belt and lurched out of the sled after Cully. In front, Santee bent over a limp Kimber on whose face blood trickled from a cut just below the hairline. What happened? Dard wiped his chin and took away a bloody hand. His lips hurt and his jaw ached. Kimber's dark eyes opened and he stared up at them bemusedly. Then comprehension came back and he demanded, Who shot us down? Santee had his rifle in his hands. That's what I'm going to see right now. Before the rest could protest, he darted away, back down the valley where they had landed, zigzagging into cover as he neared its mouth. There was a final boom of an exploding shell from that direction and then silence. Dard and Cully got Kimber free of the sled. The pilot's right arm was bleeding from a ragged wound near the shoulder. They broke open the medical kit and the engineer went competently to work so that Dard had nothing to do. When Kimber was stretched out on a bedroll, Cully returned to examine the sled itself. He took up the cover of the motor and squirmed half into the space and enclosed it, ordering Dard to hold a torch for him. When he crawled back, his face was very sober. How bad is it? asked Kimber. There was more color in his dark face now, and he levered himself up onto his elbow. Not the worst, but about as near to that as can be got. Cully was interrupted by a shout from the trees where Santee had disappeared. The big man returned, walking in the open, his rifle cradled in the crook of his arm, as if they had nothing to fear. Fellas, this here is playing crazy. There's a nest of guns down there all hidden away. Little stuff, light field pieces. But there's not a living critter in the place. Them there guns fired at us by themselves. A robot control triggered when we flew over a certain point, exploded Cully. Some kind of radar, I'll bet. Oh, Rogan ought to be here. First, Kimber reminded him grimly, we've got to get back to tell him about it. A broken sled with which to cross several hundred miles of unknown country. They were going to have quite a hike, thought Dard. But he did not comment upon this aloud. Chapter 7 Return Journey Wonder how many more booby traps such as that are hidden around? Cully glanced down the valley with open suspicion. Not many, I'd say. Kimber answered weakly. 
Must have been only a fluke that those guns were still able to fire. His voice was swallowed by an explosion severe enough to rock the ground under them. Dard saw earth and trees and debris rise into the air far down the valley as an acrid white-yellow smoke fouled the air in drifting wisps. That was probably the end of the guns, Kimber said in the ensuing silence. They'd blown themselves up. Should have done that sooner, growled Santee. A lot sooner. How about us getting away from here? He turned to Cully, who had been blasted loose from his work on the sled. That's going to be a problem. She'll get into the air again, yeah, but not with a full load. Stripped down, she may be able to carry two, flying with a list. Santee grinned at his fellow castaways. All right, two of us will hike and pack some stuff, and the other two will ride. Kimber frowned as he agreed reluctantly. I suppose that'll have to do. Those in the sled can make a camp a half day's march ahead and wait for the others to catch up. But we shouldn't lose contact. Do you think you can raise Rogan in the valley? Collie brought out the small communications device, and Kimber, using his left hand awkwardly, made the proper adjustment. But there was no answering spark. The engineer raised the box and shook it gently. All they heard was a faint answering rattle, which put an end to their hopes of a message to those who had been left by the sea. Camp was made that night just where the fortunes of that long-ago war had marooned them. Santee and Dard undertook another visit to the hidden emplacement. Two of the strange guns were tilted at a crazy angle, their loading mechanism ripped wide open, behind them a pit newly hollowed and still cloudy with fumes. Keeping away from that, the two Terrans prowled about the installation. If man or any other intelligent life had been there before them, and had been many years in the past, but Dard, knowing very little of the mechanics, believed that it had been robot-controlled. Perhaps lack of manpower had made the last war a purely push-button affair. Here's something. Santee's shout brought him to an opening in the ground. The cover had been wrenched loose by the explosion, and its clever camouflage no longer hid the steps leaning down into the darkness. Santee flashed a light beam ahead and started to descend. The steps were very narrow and shallow, as if those who had used them had had feet not quite the same shape or size of a Terran's. But once down, the explorers found themselves in a square box of a metal-walled chamber. Along one entire wall was a control panel, and facing it a small table and a single backless bench. Otherwise, the room was empty. Must have just set them robots going and left. This metal ain't rusted none but it was left a long time ago. As Santee swept the light across the control board, Dard saw an object lying on the table. He picked up his find just as the big man started up the stairs to the outer and fresher air. What he held were four sheets of a crystalline substance, fastened together at the upper left-hand corner. Running through each sheet as if embedded when the stuff was made were lines of shaded color in combination, not unlike those he had seen about the city door. An instruction book? Orders? Did those others express their thoughts in color patterns? He thrust the find into his safest pocket and determined to compare it with the microfilm of the doorway. 
The next morning, they followed Santee's plan. The pilot, handicapped by a stiff shoulder, went in the sled along with Cully, who was able to take the controls. Their supplies, pared down to a minimum, were shared between the sled and two packs for Dard and Santee. When the sled took off due south, it cruised just above treetop level. It would fly at lowest speed on that same course until noon when his crew would camp, waiting for the two on foot to join them. Dard shouldered his pack, settling it into place with a wriggle, and picked up their compass. Santee followed with pack and rifle, and they went forward at a ground-eating pace Dard had learned in the woods of Terra as the sled vanished over the rise. For the most part, they found the going through the rolling country easy. There were no wooded stretches to create impassable barriers, and they soon struck an old road running in the right direction to provide footing good enough to allow a faster pace. Insects spun out of the tall grass to blunder past them, and hoppers spied them constantly. Shortly before noon, the road made a sharp curve west toward the distant sea, and the Terrans had to strike away across the fields again. They had the good luck to stumble on a farm where not only one but two of the golden apple trees bent under the weight of ripe fruit. Pushing through the mob of semi-drunk birds, insects, and hoppers, including a new and larger variety of the former, they secured fruit, which was not only food but drink, filling an improvised bag for the sake of the sled riders. Santee bit into the fragrant pulp with a sigh of pleasure. You know, I wonder a lot. Where did all the people go? They had a war, sure, but there must have been some survivors. Not everybody could have been killed. What if they used gas or a germ or certain kinds of infective radiation? questioned Dard. There are no traces of any survivors in the city ruins or around the farms. It looks to me just as if... The big rifleman licked his fingers carefully. Just as if they all packed up and got out together the way we left the cleft. When they left the farm, the character of the country began to change. Here the soil was spotted with patches of sandy gravel which grew. Clumps of trees dwindled to thickets of wiry thorn bushes, and there were outcroppings of the same shiny black rock which had nursed the killing vines by the river. Santee shot a long survey about as they halted at the top of a steep hill. This is kind of like a desert. Glad we brought them apples. We might not hit water here. It was hot, hotter than it seemed back when they were in the blue-green fields, for this sun-baked red-brown earth and blue sand reflected the heat. Dart's skin, chafed by the pack straps, smarted when moisture trickled between his shoulder blades. He licked his lips and tasted salt. Santee's comment concerning lack of water had aroused his thirst. Below them was a gorge. Dard blinked and rubbed his eyes with the back of his hand. No, that was no trick of shimmering heat. There was a bright gleaming line straight across the floor of the valley. He called it to Santee's attention, and the other focused the field glasses on it. A rail? But why only one? We could get down over there, Dard pointed out, and let's see what it is. They made the hard climb down to verify the fact that a single metal rail did reach from one tunnel hole in the gorge wall to another tunnel directly across. 
Unable to discover anything else, they pulled themselves up the opposite cliff to continue the southward march. It was mid-afternoon when they saw, rising into a cloudless sky, the smoke signal of the sled, and their strides became a trot until they panted up the side of a small mesa plateau to the camp. How long is this trip going to last? Santee wanted to know later as they sucked appreciatively on golden apples. Another full day's journey for you two. Maybe half of the next. At this speed, we can't expect to cut it any shorter, Kimber replied. George has been working on the engines again, but there isn't much he can do without other tools. The big man grinned. Well, these here plaster boots of ours are holding up pretty well. We can keep slogging a while longer. Nothing to be afraid of. Don't be too sure of that, cautioned the pilot. Keep your eyes open, you two. There may be other booby traps scattered around. Since we were shot down, I don't even trust a clear sky. The second day's routine followed the first. Except, in the arid desert land, it was tougher going and they did not make time. Dard's head went up and his nostrils expanded as he started to pick his way down a series of ledges into a sandy, floored ravine. There was a musky, highly repellent stench arising from below, and he had stiffed something very much like it before, the putrescent remains of the duocorn. Below, an organic thing was very dead. Santee worked along to join him. What are you stopping for? Do you smell that? Santee's bearded face wrinkled. Yeah, what a stink. Something is dead. Dard studied the ground before them carefully. If they tried to double back on their trail through this up-and-down country, they were going to lose hours of time. After all, what had made that kill below, if it was indeed a kill, might have been gone for days. He decided to leave it up to Santee. Shall we go down? We'll lose a lot of time backtrailing from here if we don't. I say just keep on. But they continued the descent cautiously, and when Dard disturbed a small stone which dropped noisily over the edge, he stiffened for several listening seconds. There was no sound from below, nothing but that terrible stomach-disturbing odor. Santee unslung his rifle, and Dard's hand went to his own belt. That morning, Collie had given him his ray gun, suggesting that it could be of more use to the foot travelers. Now, as his hand closed around the butt, Dard was very glad that he held it. There was something about this ill-omened place, something in the very silence which brooded there, that hinted of danger. A screen of stubby thorn bushes masked the far end of the narrow ravine, hinting at the presence of moisture, although the prickly leaves had a grayish, unhealthy cast. The two worked their way through these as carefully and noiselessly as possible and found a seeping spring. Minerals salted the lip of the water-filled depression and a greenish powder was dry along the banks of the rivulet which trickled on down the valley. Chemical fumes from the water scented the air but not heavy enough to cover the other sickish effluvium. They should have beaten their way through the brush to the other side of the valley and climbed out of that tainted hole as quickly as possible, but no broken ledges hung over there to furnish climbing aids, and they followed the stream along in search of an easier path. The contaminated water spilled out 
into a shallow, stinking pool with a broad rim of poisonous green. Grouped around the far perimeter of the pool, half buried in the sand, were such things as nightmares were made of. Their dingy, yellowish-green skin was scaled with the stigmata of the reptile, but the creatures drowsing in the sun were not even as wholesome as the snakes most humans shrink from with age-old inbred horror. These were true monsters, evil. Gorged, they had fallen into a stupor among the grisly fragments of their feasting. And from those fragments and the smeared sand came a stench foul enough to suggest this was a long-used lair. Dard estimated that they were from seven to ten feet long. The hind legs ended in huge webbed feet, mere stems of bone laced with powerful driving muscles. Short, horribly stained forearms had terrible travesties of human hands which curved over their protruding bellies, each finger a ten-inch claw. But their heads were the worst, too small for the bodies, Flat of skull, they were mounted on unusually long and slender necks, giving the impression of a cobra on the shoulder of a lizard. As the two humans halted, a flap of loose skin on the belly of the nearest nightmare was pushed aside, and a small replica of the monster drew itself out of a sack and wobbled weakly down to the water, curling its neck over to suck up the liquid. After it swallowed the first mouthful, some instinct drew its attention to the watchers. With a shrill hiss, it scrambled back to its parent. The head of the larger thing snapped up, swaying back and forth, a snake preparing to strike. Dard threw himself back, carrying Santee with him. They were brought up short by the cliff wall, but they dared not turn their backs upon the aroused monsters long enough to find hand and footholds there. The thing across the pool was on its feet, towering far over them. With a cuff of one paw, it sent the infant sprawling to safety before it slewed around, kicking up blood-clotted sand. The flat serpent's head went down to a level with the lizard-like shoulders, and from its fanged jaws came a hiss that gathered volume until it rivaled the piercing whistle of a steam-powered engine. That battle cry aroused its fellow sleepers, but they arose sluggishly, too torpid from their feasting to respond. Santee shot. The nerve-paralyzing projectile of the stun rifle struck fair between those murderous, yellow, unwinking eyes. The skull shattered with a spatter of green ooze, but the thing waited the pool to rush them. Tearing claws outstretched, it should have been dead. But with a broken, empty skull and blinded, it still came on. The brain's not in the head, Dard shouted. Jump! They jumped apart. The advancing horror struck hard against the cliff to cling there stubbornly, clawing at the rock. It continued to scream senselessly, bringing the others of its kind to full alertness. One gave a bound, clearing the pool to fall upon its wounded companion with tearing jaws and claws. The other three appeared undecided. Their snake heads rose and fell as they hissed. One made to join the battle on the other side of the pool and then retreated. Daring to hesitate no longer, Dard took careful aim with the ray gun and sent a green beam straight into the distended middle of the creature that rocked from one splaying foot to the other. The Terrans had to clear a path past the pool, for to return near the fighters was sure death. Screaming madly, 
Dard's quarry clapped both hands over the frightful, gaping emptiness the ray had left and wilted forward into the water, sending up slimy spray of blood and poisonous liquid. With the attention of its two fellows attracted to its struggles, Dard darted to join Santee. Together the humans edged along the cliff wall, their goal the valley beyond the pool. For a few minutes it seemed that they might be able to gain it undetected by the monsters, for one of the unhurt creatures had gone to work on the body in the pool. But when its smaller companion made to join it, fangs and talons threatened, forcing the other to withdraw in a hissing fury. As its head swung back and forth at sight of the Terrans, an arcing leap brought it after them. Both the length and speed of that bound panicked the cornered men. They scrambled into the meager protection offered by the boulders and fallen rock. Santee's second bullet tore a hole in the scaled breast of the pursuer without slowing its charge. Dard pressed the firing stud on the ray gun, but the responding beam was weak. It clipped the side of the weaving head, shearing off part of the skull and one eye, and cutting neck muscles so badly that the battered head flopped erratically. Dard fired again, with no result. The clip left in the weapon must have been exhausted. His ears roared as Santee shot from beside him, but the bullet only nicked the shoulder of the writhing body. Despairing, they scuttled and backed away, keeping in among the rough footing. But they were past the pool in the middle of the valley on a course which paralleled a path worn deep and smooth by the feet of the monsters. The scream of the hunter behind them was cut by a trumpeting squeal. A second was bearing down to join in the chase. Ahead! Three or four yards! Dard got the words out between tearing breaths. There's a hole! Two! Small! He concentrated on reaching that haven, and Santee ran beside him. The hole was a perfectly round one, and from it ran the monorail of the ancient transport system. They threw themselves into the dark, scrambling on until Dard was brought up against a heavy object which gave under his weight. It slipped so suddenly that he sprawled face down, the wind driven out of him. When he caught his breath again, he sat up still groggy. The crack of the rifle filled the tunnel with a blast of sound. Finally got one. It's blocking up the hole for a while at least. But it ain't healthy in here. They can get in, squeeze themselves together and do it. What the... The big man ended his report with an exclamation of both outrage and fear. Dard had breath enough to ask, What's the matter? That was the last round I just fired. You got another clip for that ray gun? No. Then we better make tracks for the other end of this tunnel. From the sound back there, they're taking the dead one out, in pieces. When they got that done, they'll be after us again. Let me have the flash. There's something ahead here. It moves. Dar put a tentative hand out to encounter the smoothness of metal. When Santee snapped on the torch beam, he discovered he was fronting a cylinder, not unlike the one they had pulled out of the seaside tube. But this one was mounted on a grooved fin made to run along the monorail. There was no way of getting past it, since its sides were within inches of the tunnel walls. They would have to push it before them if they were going to get out the other end. That worked properly for about five minutes, and then an extra hard push sent the carrier ahead to stop with a clang. 
All their shoving could force it no farther along. Dard flattened himself against the wall and flashed the torch down the side of the cylinder. As a cave in a head, Santee massaged his bearded chin with a dirt-streaked hand. Kind of bottles us up, don't it? Give me the light. Let's have a look at these walls. Several paces back, he found a niche. It wasn't too roomy, but it was still big enough to accommodate some oddly shaped tools which Santee kicked aside. It's repairman's safety hole. I thought maybe we might happen on one of these here. Now suppose we work that truck past here and get ahead to look at the damage. Pushing the carrier before them had been an easy task, but getting it back again was another matter altogether, especially when there were no proper handholds on its smooth surface. As they worked at it, hampered by their necessarily cramped position, they broke nails and tore fingers raw. The stubborn thing moved with frustrating slowness. While, to rasp nerves, sounds from the entrance told them that the body which had obstructed the passage was rapidly being disposed of. At last, the car was pushed far enough along so that they could get into the niche behind it. Without waiting to take up their packs, they ran to the cave-in, only to be met by a hard mound of earth and rock. Santee dug the barrel of his rifle into it, disturbing only a scattered clot or two. To dig a way through, they needed tools and time, and they had neither, as the big man was forced to acknowledge. There are two of them critters left. If either one gets in here now, it's going to push that car back right onto us. But if there's any smashing done, I'm going to be the one to do it. He padded purposefully back to the carrier, and Dard hurried after him. The picture that Santee had evoked of the lizard things pushing that car down upon them was one he didn't want to think about. He had no idea what Santee had in mind, but any action now was better than just waiting for such an end. All right. Santee put his hands on the back of the carrier. Put that torch away and start pushing. Here's where we give them lizards a big surprise. And a nasty one, I hope. Dar dropped the torch and put his hands beside Santee's. Together they set their strength against the immobility of the carrier. It moved, much more easily than it had before. There was a low hum, which became a steady purr, and it gathered speed, moving away from them. We started it working! Santee's exultant cry rose to explain. He caught Dard and held him away from the entrance as the carrier sped on. There was the shock of an impact followed by a hissing scream. Then they saw a clear circle of daylight marking the entrance. The carrier and the besiegers were both gone. <laughs>